Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauck, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. We're going to talk about the alchemical dragon, which in alchemy, particular in practical alchemy, the dragon represents the spirit of the metals. Each metal has its own dragon, and we're going to review some of those dragons and how to get in touch with them. The thing to remember, of course, and I've said this time and time again, is that in alchemy, change and work takes place on three levels at once, and all three levels of reality. That's what makes it so different from other sciences and other religions and spiritual disciplines. It works on the physical level, the mental level, the spiritual level, simultaneously. It tries to do that almost impossible task. But when you learn to think alchemically like that, in other words, a change going on in the physical level is somehow connected to a change in the mental level. And a spiritual indicator may, may give you a clue about what's going on in the physical level or some physical synchronicity has meaning mentally or spiritually. When you, when you get to move like that, like Mercury, you, it really frees your consciousness. And it keeps you be, from becoming salted, as the alchemists would say. In other words, it keeps, you, it keeps your beliefs from becoming rigid where you can't learn anymore. It keeps you from being an adult. <laughs> it keeps you from being adulterated. It keeps you free and alive. And that's, that's really the key to, to understanding alchemy. Otherwise, it's a confusing mess of images and personal uh, uh, notes and, and, and laboratory experiments. But when you realize it's all connected on all different levels of reality, then it starts to make sense. And if there's any dis discipline that from the beginning doesn't look like it's going to make any sense, it's, it's alchemy. It's full of contradictions, deliberate contradictions. It's full of secrets. It's full of scrambling steps and stages so that only people who are intuitive enough will recognize what they're talking about. It's full of little tricks and blind alleys. And the only thing that will guide you through that is this thread of being mercurial and staying mercury in your, in your thought. It's like, for me as a mathematician, it's like the change from dreadful arithmetic and adding up columns and numbers, and, and which I so much hated in school, to the freedom of calculus when no number has an identity. And you run from zero to infinity, and you, and you try to feel all those numbers in the, in the calculus, in the calculations of calculus. And calculus was, of course, Isaac Newton's discovery. And Isaac Newton spent more time as an alchemist than he ever spent as a, as a physicist or a mathematician. He invented fluxions actually in response to his working with mercury and antimony and the signatures he saw in those metals he tried to apply to the mind to the mental so fluxions or, or calculus came from alchemy in a, a roundabout way and there's so many connections to alchemy i think as you, as you probably know if you've read my book i think the emerald tablet has the clearest explanation of alchemy it's a summary of alchemical principles from mercury himself hermes or uh, toth or a group of other. His succinct summary, historically, was an actual document. And I think I've proven that in my research in, in uh, Egypt, and others have uh, demonstrated it too. But basically, the, the tablet says, describes the picture of hermetic reality, which consists of two axes of reality, a vertical axis of reality, where there's an above and a below, and a horizontal axis of reality, where there's a left and right path. The horizontal path of reality is the masculine and feminine consciousness, or you can look at it as yang and yin. It's, it's, it's uh, represented by uh, masculine figures, by kings, 
by kingly figures and, and by uh, women in the feminine consciousness, by darkness uh, in, on the feminine or yin side, which means simply that it's unknown. It doesn't mean it's evil or bad. And light in the masculine side, which means that the, the masculine consciousness tends to work with light and reasoning and things that can be obvious and seen, whereas the feminine consciousness tends to work with things that can't be seen or understood, like feelings uh, and intuition. No path is really the best. <laughs> uh, we tend in our Western civilization to be uh, an aggressive, argumentative, solar-type consciousness. Everything has to be obvious and above board with us, and, and in our religions, too. And uh, In the East, it's like the world is split on this axis. It's a different approach. It's the more feminine-type consciousness uh, in, in yoga and, uh, and disciplines like that that rely on bodily feelings. Tai Chi and Qi Kung and all those very alchemical disciplines are really working on the dark side of reality with things we can't understand, things we have to, to feel. That's very hard for us in the West to grasp because, well, thoughts are fast, you know. Thoughts come fast and we move fast and we like to move fast and you're not doing anything good unless you're moving fast. And that's, our, that's the way we're taught. Keep you going, be productive, get out there, and you know, make your world. But by being fast, feelings which are slow and move in water, don't catch up with the fire of thought. So you have to deliberately slow down and let those feelings catch up. Anything you're doing, you want to build a house, okay? You just run out and get the lumber before and make the plan, or do you wait for the feelings? Do you go to the property and do you feel what the environment's like and which way the house should face and what's best? for your environment? How do you make it a more sacred place? Nobody does that when they're building apartment buildings, obviously, or, or a lot of public buildings. But that's the type of thing you have to do, and that's very hard for the, for, the, uh, for the Western mind to do. Believe me, I know from being in mathematics and publishing, both those industries are nothing but, wow, let's move out and let's go with it and pitch your story and get it in print or, and make it real that way. But often that reality does not have a, a sound basis, and it's ephemeral. And buildings uh, and people end up being insecure and uh, false in the world, not, not fitting into nature. So as much as the work has to be done on left and right paths, on this horizontal path, the true work of the alchemist is bringing them together, uniting them in his own spirit and soul. That's what this figure in this in this. Uh, drawing which is called Tabula Smaragdina, which is the uh, Latin for the Emerald Tablet, uh, done by Daniel Milas in about 1640. The, the print is really a summary of all the principles in the tablet, and I'm not going to go through them all because I've gone through that before. We'll talk a little bit more about it in the workshop. But I wanted to make you aware of this above and below because the work of the alchemist is on this vertical path. He kind of abandons or has to abandon the left and right paths or at least bring them together within themselves, and that means consciousness-wise, too. He has to blend that logic and reason with in intuition and feeling somehow. And that holy marriage is what sends him up this vertical path. There are, are even chemicals that will do this, and, or shamanic drugs, that have this tendency to destroy ego and feelings and to, and to temporarily put you on this vertical path. And alchemists, as chemists, I'm sure, experiment. At least a lot, there's a lot of indication in my work that they, that they used psychedelic drugs like ergot and LSD and, and psilocybin mushrooms in their work. And they did it meditative-wise, too. But once they're on this vertical path of reality, it's a whole different reality. There's no horizontal components. There's no choice there. There's only an above or below. And in the above, which is, you could call heaven, 
or the realm of light is where spirit resides, the universal spirit. Just, as, just like we have spirit within us and soul within us, the universal pattern is the same. We're the microcosm of the macrocosm that has this beautiful pattern to it that gives us the possibility for transformation, and true transformation, just like it goes on in nature all the time. Spirit and light above darkness and soul below. There's no judgment call here, though. Don't get trapped up in, in a lot of the Abrahamic religious ideas that you have to stay in the light. When you just stay in the light, you don't, you're not doing the work. You know? If you just go into the light and want to be spiritual all the time, number one, you end up a pretty flaky individual. <laughs> and, and number two, you're not real. You're not real in the world. And if you're too real in the world, if you're too materialistic in the world, it's just as bad. If you're too much into the darkness and matter and think that everything... That's all that counts. That's just as bad to the alchemist. Where's, where's the balance there? Where's the balance between the left and the right and the above and the below? It's right in the center. And that's always where you look in these mandalas, these alchemical mandalas. Right in the center is always the clue. It's like when they do the meditations on this drawing and others, they focus their attention at the center, just like an eastern mandala, and they try to absorb all these, these symbols. Just a couple things on this that I want to make you aware of. This is the stone or the consciousness that's truly balanced. In other words, it's like gold. It's a totally pure, balanced consciousness, state of consciousness. It doesn't react. It doesn't corrode. It's there, and it's going to stay in its internal type consciousness, enveloped, let's say, by peeling away these seven layers, which are the seven steps of alchemy or the seven operations of alchemy. There are three principles of alchemy. In this drawing, and often in alchemy of the Middle Ages, they're hidden, hidden in... Uh, Christian symbols to protect the alchemists from being burned at the stake, basically. But uh, this symbol of the tetragrammaton of God, which uh, in alchemy would be called sulfur, but if they put the symbol for sulfur here, they'd be in trouble. If, and the, the symbol of uh, matter or salt in the alchemical vein would be, would be salt in, in the re religious, in, in the Christian terms, it's the Holy Spirit. That confuses some people, and the reason it is, while salt is the enemy of the alchemist, it's also the gift. It's like Saturn. It contains it's the energy of its own transformation. So the salt that we are, even though we're formed and rigid, the first operations of alchemy are very violent about tearing down that salt, dissolving it, burning it up, and destroying it to reveal the essence of that salt. So the salt and matter always carries a hidden essence. All matter is alive, and it has this hidden intelligence or this holy ghost, if you will, hidden in it for us to reveal through the purification process. And the Lamb, of course, or the Sun, Sun, S-O-N, is, uh, is Hermes or Mercury in alchemy. So we've got Mercury, Sulfur, and Salt as the three primary principles of alchemy that, will, that you work with. And these are the principles with which you tame the dragons of alchemy, with which you tame the metals, transform lead into gold. These principles turn up time and time again in, uh, in Western alchemy. And they're very confusing for a lot of people. Sometimes sulfur seems to be soul. Sometimes sulfur seems to be spirit. Sometimes mercury. The reason is that, is that they, they're living, and they change into each one another. They, they mutate depending on the circumstances. You're not the same person in a riot as you are sitting at home in meditations. You're not the same person watching a play or making love as you are in meditation. And that's just how these living presences change. The easiest way to understand them is to see sulfur as energy, or spirit energy, mercury as light, or consciousness, and salt as matter. 
Does that make a connection with anybody? There's, a, there's one man in our century, a, a, a wonderful, beautiful man, peaceful man who was an alchemist, if anybody was, and that's Albert Einstein. And he brought back from one of his imaginary trips, which, which might be called fermentation in alchemy, where you use the imagination to bring back truth. He imagined himself flying on a light, riding a light beam through the universe and observing the effects that the universe had on that light. And he brought it back, and he realized an equation. And he took years then to translate that into mathematics, and he came up with E equals mc squared. So sulfur equals matter times light in the alchemical sense, or energy equals matter times light. Light, energy, and matter are the same thing. And that table, that piano, is pure energy, but it's been frozen in time. And the thing that changes that back into energy is light, or it gives off light. It's connected with light. In other words, there's a, there's a hint that our consciousness is like a force of nature, force in nature. And that's that it's concealed in light. In fact, if that equation, if, if the little c in that equation stood for, instead of light, if it stood for consciousness, it, there'd be no difference there between that equation and the chemical equation of transformation. And it's a, it's a, it's a bold synchronicity that, that modern science would confirm the alchemical equation of these three uh, principles, as they call it, and find the same principles in nature and work with the same principles. We know now in quantum physics, as we move beyond Newton and Einstein's thoughts, that consciousness is indeed a force in nature, that there are quantum effects that can only be explained, like the observer effect uh, has on, on experiments, and, and the other effects have been documented on, on this cutting-edge science. So just want to make you aware of that. One more thing, an oddity of this and other chemical drawings you'll always notice if you look for it is this. This sun is called Mind the Maker, this four sun. These are the cherubs or, or 22 archetypes, of, for instance, in the tarot, that are projected into reality from the above, from spirit. In other words, the form or pattern of, of creation that comes from spirit through the archetypes of God. Yet, yet this is not, in the alchemical sense, in the Abrahamic religions, this is God. In the alchemical sense, this is not God. This is a part of God called Mind the Maker. It's like a machine that has these archetypes in it, and God is really one step out of this process. And, it, and they call it the sun behind the sun, the black sun, the invisible sun. And they only meet this sun in meditations, deep meditations. It's not visible in the world. There's nothing you can say about this sun. It's, it's the sun behind the sun. It's the process behind the process that we're involved in in the universe. It's that one point of the whole universe where nothing can be said or described. It's best described in pictures, and I think uh, my friend Alex Gray does a better job than anybody in the world of connecting us with it. He's the grandson of the guy who wrote Gray's Anatomy, and his grandfather tried to show the physical anatomy of man, and, uh, and Alex shows the esoteric anatomy of man. But in, in most of his drawings, you'll see during meditation that you can contact this. Again, the one point of meditation, working with the energies in the body, but always behind is this sun behind the sun, the greater sun that you can contact and be with in meditation. Enclosed in the egg of meditation, as it's called, this light around it, this, this source. I'm, I'm presently been working the last five years on a book on Egyptian alchemy. I'll be working on it for the next five years. It's a lot. 
lot to work on. But there's one thing I discovered, and I wanted to share it with you, a translation from a book called The Destruction of Humankind, which is really about how to save or prevent the destruction of humankind through a process that is the oldest description known of meditation. A few of these terms, when they say Toth speaks to you, when Toth speaks to you, that was like a very common greeting in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. It meant, may you be inspired today. May Toth, the, the god of Mercury and thought, reach you today. They, they felt that beyond their everyday thoughts, when they had a really hot idea, or really uh, on fire with an idea, or really inspired with a new idea, that didn't come from them. That came from Toth, and Toth was speaking to them, or through them. And of course, you'll see the symbolism of seven and three. In alchemy, too, uh, it's about seven operations, taking three times two perfection, or seven times three is 21, the idea of maturity. So at the end of the alchemical process are these seven operations taken on the three levels that I was talking about. When you do these seven operations of alchemy on the physical level, in the body, which was done first, basically so people could live long enough to do the other operations, because this, this wisdom takes up time. And uh, like Shaw observed, George Bernard Shaw and back to Methuselah, we don't live long enough to get enlightened. That's the problem. <laughs> if we just get beyond our adolescence and live two or three hundred years, it'd be a whole different world here. And that was his solution to all the world's problems was to get people a little longer. And, and, and back to Methuselah, it was just about making up your mind that you've been programmed to live 70 years. Now make up your mind to live 200. And, and suddenly it happens, and that's how that story goes. So the alchemists begin that seven operations on what they call the lunar conjunction, which is in the physical body. Seven operations succeeded in the physical body using herbs and all kinds of physical methods. The other conjunction was the solar conjunction took place in the mind and heart and these seven operations performed there in our psychology, in other words, to become wise. And the final conjunction was a spiritual conjunction, or they called it the stellar conjunction, where we either return to the stars or we formed some type of stellar body, which Paracelsus called the astral body. Um, so you'll see seven and three a lot in alchemy, and that's what it means. It always refers to that. There are the seven operations of transformation, the three levels of reality, and the operations performed on each of those levels. Now this quote. <laughs> Whensoever Toth speaks to you, and you wish to recite a composition on behalf of the sun, then you must perform a sevenfold purification for three sunrises. Whether a person or a group shall so proceed, you shall make your position in a circle, which is made beyond you, and your eyes shall be fixed within the circle. All your actions shall be composed and motionless, and your steps shall not carry you away from the circle. If you shall attentively dwell, within the circle, and observe with the eyes of your heart, you will find the path that leads above. Even so shall the image become your guide, for the divine sight has this peculiar charm. It holds fast and draws onto it those who succeed in opening their eyes in this way. Now whosoever shall vocalize the sacred words shall visualize themselves as Toth or Ra in the redness of the dawn of his birth. Thus shall a thought exclusively occupying your mind be transformed into the actual state. And from this lesson, your house shall never fall into decay, but will endure throughout eternity. That's a wonderful 4,000-year-old description of the process of meditation and, uh, and the effects of meditation. And really, that same process went on in Egypt, among Egyptian alchemy, which is where the roots of alchemy are at, and also 
in Europe and also in uh, Eastern alchemy where it, where it uh, was translated into, into their terms. In Eastern alchemy, the result of all alchemical processes returns to Earth. In other words, like I mentioned, it doesn't remain above or below. It returns to that center point, an incarnated point, a real point, where you're a real person, but you have, you're golden. You have all these qualities in the world, in the real world. It's like Buddha returning to the world to do his work after he's been enlightened. And uh, in, the, in the East, that conjunctive center, they had a special word for it, which none, no such word exists in English, but it's, it means heart-mind, zin is the word. And it's about the conjunction in the heart of not just the physical energies, but the mind. And the Egyptians had an identical word, and the hieroglyphics translates as intelligence of the heart. So it's bringing the reality back to your heart, back to where you are real, and to have an intelligence of your heart, an intelligence, intelligent emotions, a concept which we do not have. Intuition, the concept of intuition approaches this, but it's something that we really don't have a handle on, like, like, uh, like the Chinese alchemists, the Taoist alchemists, and the Egyptian alchemists. Again, another drawing just showing the, these principles I've been talking about. Horizontal reality made up of the elements, fire, water, air, and earth. The vertical reality working with these salt. Here's the symbol for salt. Sulfur and mercury, symbol for fire, water, uh, fire, earth, water, and air. And these symbols down here, hidden in matter and the Holy Ghost, are symbols of the first matter. And the first matter is the first dragon, often called the Hermes dragon in, in reference to Hermes, the Emerald Tablet. And the sub subject of the Emerald Tablet is the first matter and is this dragon. This Hermes dragon posed, and here you see the winged heels of Hermes. The thing about Hermes and the Hermes dragging and the first matter is that it exists on all levels at once. And it's composed of these three principles we're talking about. Here's the symbol for Mercury and the uh, sulfur, the sun, and salt is usually white, shown as, a, as a, some type of vulture or some type of disgusting animal, usually, to be transformed into the beautiful phoenix or something like that. The idea here in the Hermes bird is that it contains all, all it needs of its own transformation. So the first matter occurs in the earth, and, and the alchemists went all over the world looking for the first matter, trying to find the first matter. Uh, they they uh, collected dew. They collected all kinds of atrocious things like the dung and the urine of young boys was especially thought to contain the first matter. Uh, they distilled the urine and drank it. And they did all kinds of things. Of all, all, any slightest clue to where the first matter was, they'd go overboard and, and usually poison themselves or something like that, trying to, trying to work with it. A lot of, for a long time, mercury was thought to be the first matter, and, and it still is today. And yet, if you use mercury in the wrong way, uh, it will kill you. The principles and the, the steps of taming the dragon in the alchemical work are known as these seven operations of transformation. Here's shown in another mandala. We've got that uh, horizontal level reality with the masculine and feminine consciousness. The feminine consciousness over nature, or at least really, really connected to nature, and the masculine consciousness ruling the world through his weapons and scepter and uh, shields. But there's a component of the masculine consciousness that we're all very much aware of, and I think it's obvious in our civilization too, that to rule, the masculine consciousness has to reject or push away things. In other words, to dispose things or try to kill things. And when 
you push away things. Sometimes you give them energy, especially psychic components, and Jung was very much aware of this. You push something into the shadows, and it's going to come back at you. And normally, you'll find with the solar consciousness a dragon hidden in the darkness of matter, or hidden in a cave somewhere, or hidden in his own unconscious, waiting to kill him, or snap back him, or destroy his actions in the world. And that dragon, which is gremlins, which is things that interfere with our grandiose plans, and you see it in your own lives, I'm sure, I, I know I see it in mine, when you really get things all organized and linearly step, I'm going to do this, that, that, and I'm going to do that, 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 and something's going to screw it up, believe me. Something's going to mess it up, and that's this dragon, because you haven't done the foundation and the balance of the true alchemy. So the dragon's always present on the solar consciousness to trip him up and to follow up the operation somehow. Again, this is the alchemist's body where the first step in alchemy is actually to balance the elements or balance your thinking, intuitive, and feeling, and sensating qualities equally, or fire, earth, air, and water. And they're balanced here. Here's the ostrich feather for air, fire, and one foot on earth and one foot in the water. So this is the balanced individual. The alchemy doesn't start until you're balanced, until you realize through the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, through, through just living in the world, that you've got to get balanced. You've got to get your balance in the world, and you've got to start working on yourself. And that's what this is about. The first operation is with lead and Saturn, the symbol here for both. It, it, the symbol itself means the moon is below in matter. In other words, the moon is solid and below. The next symbol, the moon is above, so it's a, it's a step towards revealing the essence of matter. It's a step towards bringing the moon and letting the moon rise. This is a fire operation called calcination, where you first step is to burn whatever you're working with, including your own thoughts. And uh, in the experiment, it's to start to work with fire. These two operations, uh, called dissolution and calcination, are very much water and fire operations. They're very much the operations where we spend most of our lives. Um, the calcination works with thoughts, and, and dissolution works basically with feelings. And most of us think and really, as you, as you grow into wisdom here, you realize that so many people believe that that's all they are, are their thoughts and emotions. There are people who think that that's all they are, are their thoughts. They spend endless energy trying to explain themselves and, and, and justify their actions and rarely take any blame for doing anything wrong. They want to make their thoughts perfect, and they think that's all they are. Or on the other hand, there's people who totally think that they're just their feelings and emotions. And that, that, that's totally who they are. And you don't realize that that's not true, that your thoughts and your emotions are often tripping you up and tricking you. And, and they're, they're what the alchemists would call the dross of, that you have to get rid of. You have to purify them because they're keeping you in a prison. Wherever your thoughts and emotions were formed, usually, they were without basis, like building that house again without taking into account the deeper realities. So, Wherever you got your thoughts, something happened uh, that you saw someone getting beaten up, or you saw a person of a certain race do something, and, and you made a thought, or, or you've seen some person acting in an uh, undesirable way, and you've associated that with his culture. All of a sudden, those are thoughts and judgments that build up in you. Every day, you start making these thoughts and judgments, and every day, you just bury yourselves in salt. Or your emotions. You get hurt, someone hurts you deliberately, or, some in, or, or not on purpose, you still get hurt. Your, your feelings build up just like your thoughts until you're buried in your feelings. And you're nothing but a robot of your thoughts and feelings. And there's nothing 
It's a prison. The alchemist knew. In fact, the wonderful thing about salt is that it's just salt. Uh, it's just salt. It can be dissolved. You can become a totally different person by dissolving your, your salts and emotions. And yeah, that's a scary thing. When I talk before psychologists about you know, burning up the ego and, and, uh, and, and releasing your emotions and, and using that energy, it's like a shock. I mean, it's like a, it's a wave goes through the audience because I'm talking about the bread and butter, basically. You know, they're working with ego. The ego's very real to psychologists. But to the alchemist, everything you've built up in that identity, in that world identity, is dross. It's all salt. It can be dissolved, just like uh, in the metals and in the laboratory. They know how salts dissolve, and the key is to finding out how does it dissolve those dragons that, that plague us of salt and emotions. But it's not very successful with most of us, and we spend most of our lives just circling in these two operations, learning a little bit. And that's why it takes a while before you realize that the next operation of uh, uh, um, alchemy is necessary, separation, which works with iron. The metal iron here's a symbol for it, the, the masculine impulse, the warrior impulse, basically. The impulse saying, I'm fed up, you know, it's got to change. There's going to be a revolution, and let's do it. Whether you're talking about your own psychology, your own spiritual quagmire that you might be in, the selfishness of your soul or the attachment of your soul to the things past, wherever that level you're working on, your body gone bad from years of abuse and uh, unwise living, whatever you're working on, it takes a step where you have to decide, from now on, no more. And you may have to say goodbye to people you've, you've been around for a long time, who you think you love or who you're in some type of relationship with, who are keeping you from separating, from keeping you from becoming a new person. And, and I'm sure you all know that if you lose a little bit of weight, sometimes that upsets your partner more than because you're a new person. And, and you get in, I've seen relationships where there's actually this quiet sabotage going on between one person trying to make the other person fat just to keep them or heavier, uh, just to keep him like he was. You know, there's that resistance to change, and that's on the emotional level, that's on the thinking level. People in relationships like the status quo, unless you're both involved in the alchemy of change, and then that is a tremendously powerful relationship. If your relationship is mercurial and free and, and, and in the moment, then it's a growing alchemical relationship. If it's salted and, and tied to this thing you've created, then it's going to require some revolution. It's going to require some arguments. It's going to require some behavior that the other person doesn't like. And that's, that's all about this stage of separation and iron and using iron and the iron will. If that's successful, then all of a sudden you come to realize that there's, there's these essences, that the dragons are really not dragons, that they carry a secret little pill or, or a glass ball, as, it, as the dragons often associate it with, that is the seed and the essence, the purest essence of who you are. And you'll find that there are two of those essences, one from your thoughts and one from your emotion, that are the essences of your soul and spirit or as the alchemists call them, the red and the white essences, the white of the soul and the, the red of the spirit, sometimes called the king and the queen, uh, especially if the king and queen are naked, meaning that they're pure. And those two essences then are brought back together again to, in the conjunction, the conjunction of a new being now, uh, a new personality, a new chemical, and a, a transformation of the metals, and conjunction uh, is associated with the copper dragon, or the uh, this is a symbol for copper, which is the planet Venus. It's about love. In fact, the alchemists called copper the 
the Meritrix metallorum, which means the harlot or the whore of the metals, <laughs> because copper combines with so many metals, so many other, makes so many compounds, it just sleeps with anybody and it combines with any metal. And that's the, that's the signature of copper, and it's also the signature of this, this conjunctive phase. It's about bringing together the opposites, male and female, and, and making a baby. It, and there's a lot of sexual imagery in alchemy at this stage. It has nothing to do with, with physical sex, unless we're talking on that level, and specifically like tantric alchemy or something. So it's a very sexual stage. It's, very, it's a very uh, energetic stage of bringing together these opposites in a love, and, and really this is the integration uh, of, of Jungian psychology where it comes together at this level. But often at that level, as even the Jungian psychologists admit, this conjunction is very fragile. You go out in the world and you have all this, especially on the mental level, on the spiritual level, the, the, the world just destroys it. I mean, you've got this new personality, it feels right, it fits right, it's alive, and then you go in the world and, and all of a sudden it just starts to disintegrate at work. or on the road when you, when you just lose it at another driver and you realize that's not part of who you want to be, that type of stuff, and it falls apart. So in alchemy, not in psychology necessarily, you have to move to the operations above. Conjunction is a turning point from the operations below to the operations above. The operations above deal with the life force or new life coming in, and the first operation is fermentation, which uh, is represented by the mercury metal, the mercury dragon, and the... the uh, the process of fermentation, which begins with a, a process, and natural fermentation begins with a deadly process where, called putrefaction, where the matter, like grapes, you crush the grapes and you dissolve them, put them in a slurry, go through all these calcination, uh, pulverizing, and dissolution, separation operations, and, and then you can junk them in a solution. But then all of a sudden the solution turns rotten, it starts to decay, it turns black. That's putrefaction, and that's the dark night of the soul. That's where you actually, how do you get to the other side? You have to die and re be born there. So your ego is totally destroyed at this place, through one way or the other. Either it's through your giving up in the world, your ego's been beat down so much that you don't give a damn anymore, and you're just a totally empty vessel when, when all this stuff starts to happen, when you're like totally empty is when, when the real change starts to begin. Or when in meditation, when you deliberately destroy your ego, destroy your identity, or destroy, become nothing in order to become something on a higher level. You have to surrender that old identity. And that's true of the metals too. They have to surrender, be made to surrender their old signatures in order to become uh, the, the more noble metals. So fermentation is an important process. After the putrefaction, uh, a little white liquid of digesting bacteria appears like the white light on the other side. and then it turns into what they call the cauda pulvonis, or the peacock's tail, which is a beautiful display of colors, rainbow colors. It's a, it's a real thin oil that floats on top of the black matter. That's the indication that the process is successful, that life is coming into the darkness now. And that's when fermentation begins. And fermentation in alchemy on, on the mental level and spiritual level is really like a psychedelic trip. It's, it's all about images and, and, uh, and new visions, and overwhelming visions sometimes. And, like UFO experiences, ghost experiences, are all fermentation experiences as being when it's genuine, when a person really believes it. Uh, and mystical visions and mystical experiences and psychedelic trips are all fermentation experiences, bringing new life and light and uh, something totally beyond you into your environment. And that's what they try to do with the metals, too. 
Uh, that's like, it's very much like a religious experience. And if you don't move to the next phase, you can become really bogged down in that. You can become overwhelmed by that, like many people are with their, their mystical experiences or their UFO or ghost or whatever type of paranormal, parareality, paramystical experience they're having. It's overwhelming. So you have to move to the next phase in alchemy, which is distillation, represented by the moon. So there's a calming of the energies here. If this is a, a, a religious experience, then this is kind of a scientific experience where you try to generate objectivity, where you take a step back. And if you don't do it, you, you lose your mind. I mean, it's, it's, it gets to that point where you want to distill your experiences and understand the energies and what's going on. That happens in the laboratory on the physical level. They actually start distilling the compounds to purify them. The more, longer you distill it, the more pure it becomes until finally it becomes what they call the mother of the stone or a really thick solution that, that wants to congeal uh, immediately. And the metal there is silver, uh, one of the noble metals, a metal that the indications in alchemy are that these metals are live and these metals are dead. And this one is kind of in between. And the whole process here is bringing life. The alchemists believe they're masters of the life force, bringing life to the metals. So silver uh, and mercury, of course, being quicksilver, liquid silver, it really doesn't have an identity. It, uh, it takes the identity or shape of anything. You look into mercury, you see your own face. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing metal that is also called the rebus in alchemy. And the rebus dragon is the two-headed dragon in one body. Why it's called the rebus is because it also has complementary or actually contradictory qualities. Mercury can be a great healer. It was used to heal syphilis. That's where mercurochrome comes from. It's a very much a healing agent. And it can also be a killer. Now, mercury is extremely poisonous. Just like uh, a, if your blood pressure gauge breaks in the doctor's office and a drop of mercury comes on the floor, the hazmat crew comes out, shuts down the whole building, and, and sucks it up with these huge vacuum cleaners. And So mercury is a deadly poison. At least that's what people believe. The alchemists don't believe that necessarily. I should say a grace for all the alchemists who died <laughs> using mercury, because there are quite a few. But uh, in the deepest teachings of alchemy, mercury is also the elixir or the cure that will bring you all the qualities of gold, because mercury dissolves gold and uh, is used in its mining. At least that's implied. And certainly in Eastern alchemy, uh, you go in, in East India, and there's alchemists selling mercury pills on the street all over the place, every corner almost. And they have them mixed with herbs sometimes that are specific to certain diseases, but there's a good, good component of mercury there, amalgamated with, with other metals usually. And they sell them all over the place. And also there's tales of alchemists who work with mercury who weren't hurt by it. I remember one alchemist who, Helmholtz uh, in England, demonstrated how rapidly mercury, when it travels through the body, actually travels through the nerve system. And, and there's, it has, there's no brain barrier to mercury. It goes right to the brain. So if you put, like Helmholtz did, put his big toe in a saucer of mercury, had a gold coin in his mouth, and within 10 minutes, that gold coin was coated with mercury, plated with mercury, just through his body. And he lived a long time, although he did eventually die uh, from mercury poisoning, but he lived a long time. <laughs> and uh, another alchemist, in fact, there's, there, there's this idea, and I have to tend to confirm it myself from my own experience, when I was a kid, about uh, eight or ten years old, we lived in Chicago in an old tenement building in South Chicago. And uh, there was this huge gas meter in the basement for all the apartments. 
and one day a gas man came and repaired the meter. He left this big pile of mercury, pool of mercury underneath the meter from repairing it. And the, the, when, the mercury ga when the gas goes through the mercury, it meters it. And so there was like half a cup of mercury laying on the floor. And I discovered it, that's shimmering and beautiful. I can just see it now in the darkness. It was, And I scooped it up, put it in a, a jar, and played with it for months after that. Um, and I showed it to my friends. It was like the most fascinating thing, the most fascinating matter we'd ever seen. I mean, we played with it. We, we, we constantly had it out. Mercury is very volatile, has odors that you can't smell that poison you, according to the alchemist. In a chemist's laboratory, if they're working with mercury, there's all kinds of exhausts going on and filters and, and masks worn by people, and, and we were just playing with this stuff. In fact, we started, back then, uh, the dimes were, the mercury dimes, as a matter of fact, were silver, genuine silver. So if you put silver in mercury, it becomes coated with uh, uh, the mercury. It becomes an amalgam. So we, we, we set apart uh, as our duty to bring these dull dimes back to life by coating them with mercury. So we just rub, you just put it in the mercury and rub it a few times, and then it's got this gleaming coat of mercury that still is liquid on there, but it's bonded permanently to it. And it's like it's been chromed or something. So we put these back in circulation, thinking, <laughs> thinking we were doing, you know, it's like something we did. Here's a good thing for mercury. Look how beautiful it makes these times. And we'd be arrested as terrorists today if we did. <laughs> and I, I hope it did no damage to anybody. But I... I want to tell you one thing that I did with the mercury, and that is to roll it in my mouth. I rolled it under my tongue. I held it there. I loved it. I never swallowed it. I didn't end up retarded like the, of the symptoms. I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> like the symptoms of, of mercury poisoning are. They're, they go right to your brain. They cause retardation. They cause lack of visions. They cause a stiffness uh, and rigidity in, in the organs, and, and it's anti-life. But as a child, believe me, that's not how mercury affected me, and I don't know why. Uh, but I've heard other stories like that from alchemists, and my theory is that children don't know that mercury is poison, or, or children are pure enough in their energy system somehow, or, or just not full of dross that, that would cause the mercury to become poison, that they can survive that. Now, I, I've never taken mercury again, and please don't go home and feed mercury to your children. <laughs> but it's just something that kind of rides in my mind sometimes. And, and I think it was after that that really I got really interested in mathematics. I started seeing things in numbers and relationships like that. And I don't know if it was mercury or not, but it's very much in line with, with the old tales of the alchemist and, and what mercury does and how it affects. In other words, only in the most extreme, deepest meditations and, and the deepest purification of the alchemist in his meditations, can he take mercury or work with mercury? And that's the idea, and that's certainly the idea in the East, absolutely the idea in the East. In fact, the, there's tales of Buddha, the ones that end in him dying in 488 BC, they tell of him taking mercury throughout his life uh, as a food almost that kept him pure. And then uh, his alchemist's name was Kundri, as a matter of fact, and he supplied him with this purified mercury. And then when Buddha decided to die, he changed his composition and took the same mercury he'd been taking for years, and he died within a few days of mercury poisoning. And that's, that's one of the legends of Buddha's death. So mercury is the real alchemical dragon that offers us health and death and offers us everything contradictory. And just to finish up the operation, 
The final operation is gold, of course, and bringing together coagulation, it's called, and it's really not much of an operation at all. If you've done these previous two operations right, this almost like falls into place. It's, it's a precipitate often in the experiment. Coagulation is just a, like a white ball or something that forms out of the clear solution or sometimes the darkened solution or in the metal, uh, the molten metal in the crucible. It'll be a hard ball, like a red ball sometimes. That's what happens. It just pops out. It just comes. There's no, nothing more to do there. And that's, that's gold. That's a perfected state of matter. Or as the alchemists often show it, as an androgynous youth emerging from a grave or always associated with an with a, um, androgynous young being, a reju totally rejuvenated being. Now the dragons. This is the uh, green dragon, which is the first dragon of the alchemist, and then that's the first matter. It's the quintessence. Or if you're working in the body, it's the life force, the chi, the prana. That's how the eastern alchemists work with it. They tend to work in the body. The green dragon is, I would say, not tameable, <laughs> although the efforts are to accumulate the essence of the green dragon. The green dragon in the metals, it's also associated with the, the life force again, especially in the east. So we're talking, this is, reminds me of the uh, Sushuma or the, the Kundalini energy, which is the green dragon in the tantric system, rising up from the Muladhara chakra through the Svaditana all the way up to the Sahasrara crown and bringing the life force or purifying the life force in the body in that way. And that's the, the focus of tantric alchemists. The next dragon in alchemy is the black dragon, which is lead, uh, the spirit of lead. Uh, and and uh, as it becomes purified, it becomes the spirit of, uh, of tin. Lead in itself is a fascinating metal. It's, uh, it's not despised by the alchemists at all. Like, like you would think, if you, if you hold a piece of lead, it's, it's heavy, it's soft, it's cold, it's not much fun. <laughs> it's just blah, you know, it just lays there. If you slice lead, it's, it shines just like mercury, it's, it shines just like silver, but only for a second. And then if, as you watch, it becomes dark again, like it's dying again, like it, like it wants to come alive, but it, but it can't. It becomes coated with uh, lead oxide. The alchemists have discovered over the years that lead is actually can, contains a seed of mercury. And uh, in, in the higher operations, really, there's no difference between lead and other similar metals like antimony and mercury, and you treat them the same. Because the alchemists recognize that, that lead carries the fire of its own transformation, that lead and Saturn and the Saturnic energies that, are, that, that carry these signatures of lead, like, like lethargy and laziness in our in ourselves or not wanting to change, being stubborn. It's just like that, that planet that takes 30 years to, to go around the slowest planet, Saturn, associated with Father Time and, and slow movement and control of matter. In fact, the, the mythology there is, is remarkable in that it, it hints at knowledge that the ancients couldn't have had. Uh, the myth is that Saturn wanted everything. He wanted to accumulate everything and that uh, he was very fearful of his children killing him and taking all he had. He's very materialistic, in other words. So as soon as his children were born, he ate them and kept that from happening to him. Well, his wife, Rhea, which means basically dissolution, it means flowing and letting things flow. It's the next, or it's the cure to, to this stubborn state that he's in. When the next son was to be born, Jupiter, she fed Saturn a, a stone, a large rock, 
and he thought he was eating Jupiter. I, I want to make that clear to you. He f she fed him a rock, and Jupiter was free then to become another planet, free to get away from Saturn. In astronomy, Saturn is all about gravity and trying to grab all matter towards it. If, if Saturn had been successful in bringing all matter towards it and would have gotten heavy enough, it would have become a star. It would have been the second star in the solar system. We would have had a dual sun. But it wasn't successful because Rhea fed him a stone, uh, like the, the, the circle, uh, the belt, the asteroid belt, or the belt of rocks that, that uh, surrounds Saturn's rings, like he's trying to bring these in. She fed him one of those stones, and that freed Jupiter to become a planet and get beyond the Saturn heaviness of, of matter. How the ancients knew that that was the process that went on, that, that, uh, that Jupiter is basically a part of Saturn that got away from it, um, and that Saturn was trying to bring all this matter together, become a star, to become a god of its own right, and yet its son became the god of gods, the Zeus, or the Jupiter, is amazing. That, that, uh, and all the myths contain elements like that of knowledge that how could they know that, you know? And lead itself, like Saturn, contains this seed of becoming a star, wanting to become a star. If you pulverize lead and make it a fine powder, which is very difficult, but uh, the common way the alchemists did it was to take lead acetate and, and put it in a glass cylinder and then uh, heat the cylinder, and the lead acetate, the acetate part would be taken off, and you try and seal that. Nowadays we use a vacuum to, to take the uh, the air out and all that lead acetate stuff and what's left is this very very fine powder of lead pure lead so as soon as you release the seal or, or introduce air back into the container puff it's just gone in a, in a uh, fire combust itself when it's divided into its essence so it, can, it contains this fire of its own transformation and it's a remarkable thing to see it just goes up in, in this fire there's no smoke there's no there's no color except this red momentary flash and all the, all the powder is gone. So it has a signature of being transformable and if it wasn't for that, if, if Rhea hadn't have fed Saturn a stone, alchemy wouldn't be possible. We'd be trapped in this matter. There would be no consciousness in our galaxy. There would be no hope for evolution or for, or for alchemy. So that signature of lead, the alchemists deeply respected. And that dragon they worked with as much as they could. In fact, they often, through dissolution and the processes of dissolution, and these pictures of dragons, some of them from alchemy and some of them from just pictures of dragons I like. Like uh, this one kind of insinuates the alchemist being caught up in the dissolution process with the dragon and making it come alive and fire. And that's, that's the way the alchemists felt. When they entered the laboratory and worked with the metals, it wasn't like a chemist, you know, believing that it's all going to behave the same way. The alchemists didn't know what these dragons of the metals were going to do. They, they didn't have textbooks, and they, they experimented. Everything was in the moment and experiential. And they did their meditations to try to deeply understand the signatures of the metals. So when they went in to work with the next metal of, of tin, which is the Jupiter's metal, um, they're very cautious. And, they, and when they look for the tin signatures, they look carefully. Tin, luckily, was a very benevolent metal and also a good god. Uh, Jupiter and Zeus, the good gods. The problem with those gods, just like the problem with the planet, it doesn't have enough mass. It's only just a small piece that's formed this huge atmosphere around it. It's the biggest planet, but it's full of air. <laughs> and you'll find that in Jupiterian people. You know, these kingly types who think they rule, or, or politicians, 
who think they rule don't have any depth, they don't have any... Uh, Jupiterian people tend to be users of people, sexually and politically, and, and uh, like, like uh, Zeus and Jupiter in, in Mount Olympus, uh, even of the gods, they use them. So tin, while it appears like silver and, and appears like a noble metal, is really just cheap metal, just cheap tin. And you have to work with it before you realize that. So the God seems very intimidating. You know, the President of the United States or the Archbishop seems very intimidating. But they're usually full of air because they haven't developed themselves and aren't, aren't the right metal, don't have the right temperament for the alchemist. So they didn't respect tin as much as we would think uh, and all the tin implements that we have have this signature really of being cheap and, and uh, disappointing in use. The next dragon in alchemy is the martial dragon or the, the Mars dragon, the dragon of iron. Often you'll see this dragon with red or orange colors like the planet Mars which is about 6% iron, I mean, it's all on the surface. That's what gives it its color. Always, uh, very often with a sword because Mars is associated with war, but also because the element of Mars is, is air and cutting through air. And you can see that in signatures like in the blood where iron is the chief component of bringing air into the body uh, in the hemoglobin in the blood and other signatures. There's a deeper signature here of iron and the way it behaves. Iron's very mechanical, very uh, mechanistic. It's, it's extremely dry. All the compounds of iron have hardly any water in them at all. Iron is a, a hard, harsh metal that tends to be very mechanical. In other words, it forms square, kind of ugly crystals. It has this... Uh, iron compounds kind of tend to look like Borg spaceships, you know? They've got all these little... Unlike the Borgs, half human, they're very mechanical. And they tend to have all these squares over and over again throughout. And that's the, the military attitude, really. It's very mechanical. And, and the corporate attitude is very mechanical, both Mars archetypes. So the alchemists hated Mars, I think you could say, more than any other. Well, not more than any other. They're in, the, in the iron family, there is a metal that they hated more, and that was aluminum. They thought that aluminum was the most disgusting metal <laughs> to work with. They refuse to work with aluminum in laboratories. Aluminum is really a, a signature of Mars me mechanical or commercial aspect in our world today, too. It's what we recycle. There's tin cans. I mean, the planet's being covered with cans and aluminum byproducts. And they even know now that aluminum pans um, uh, are suspected to cause Alzheimer's disease and cooking with them is not recommended. The alchemist sense this this really negative part idea of aluminum being so commercial or industrial. You know, there's no way to make aluminum except through highly advanced industrial techniques like using electricity. You have to have those techniques to mass produce it. So it's a it's a metal of civilization, but not the civilization that the alchemists are looking for. And iron's that way too. Iron's a metal of civilization. Iron is really the metal of our civilization. We are still in the Iron Age. Steel and, and iron rule our world. The signatures of steel and iron also rule our psychology and our, and our philosophy in a lot of ways in the, in the social sphere. Iron as a, as a metal has this signature of mechanization and mechanized thought instead of living, living thought. And that's the dichotomy between, for instance, mercury, a really living metal, and iron. Merc mercury makes amalgams with all the other metals except iron. They just don't get along. <laughs> iron and mercury uh, do nothing together. They, they, 
They're, in fact, iron containers are what usually used to uh, contain mercury because it dissolves so many other things. So the signature of iron was very distasteful to the alchemists, and they made a big effort to transform iron. Even though the alchemists were responsible for our iron age and our steel age, they discovered that uh, by accident, uh, uh, iron has this propensity to combine with carbon. And when the alchemists dropped accidentally charcoal or something into the uh, molten iron, they realized it changed its, its signatures and made it harder. For instance, one, one carbon, one charcoal in a pot of boiling iron, uh, molten iron, uh, would change it into cast iron. Would bring it when you, you could pour it and be very brittle and hard. Or two charcoals or three would change it into a, a steel, a type of steel. And the alchemists discovered all that. And it wasn't until it was industrialized in England or into the Bessemer steel making process where they add carbon to steel and make different grades of, add carbon to iron and make different grades of steel that this process became industrial and, and took over the planet. There's another signature that that Mars and Earth uh, have a lot in common, that because of that, the alchemists actually predicted iron taking over our world and ruling our world, because they felt that Mars and Earth were brothers, as they often said. Astronomically, there is some evidence that Mars and Earth did come from the same super planet that, that exploded in the asteroid belt and actually formed these two planets of Mars and Earth. Uh, there are very great similarities between the two planets. Both have iron cores and both have about 5 or 6% of iron on the crust. If it wasn't for water, if it wasn't for copper's presence in the alchemical sense on this planet, uh, we'd be just like Mars. We'd be a red planet of dust and dryness without life. So in the conjunction of the dragons, we try to bring the two dragons together, whichever dragons we're working with, or the metals, like, for instance, iron and mercury, they actually tried to bring together in a conjunctive process using copper. So that's how the signatures were brought together. In the life force, it's the same thing as bringing the two dragons of soul and spirit together. Or, or in the uh, Eastern alchemy, uh, yin and yang, and that process of combining them in an in alchemical body, and working with the energies of chi and the signatures of chi and the life force. This is all taking place in conjunction where the two come together. So it's whatever metals you're working with. One clue about working with the dragons that, that comes forth during conjunction writings of the alchemist is, is this drawing about a chemical process. This is the dragon. The red and white signatures here again signify this as an advanced dragon coming together towards the, towards the end of the process of distillation and coagulation. In other words, the wing has a signature of silver and gold here, or the signature of the king and the queen. And this, this dragon is being suppressed by spirit, who always comes in on a white charging horse uh, with armor. It's like the knight. The whole idea of the knight was spirit coming in to save the soul, who, was, who had actually, actually had the dragon on a leash anyway and uh, actually didn't mind. If you look at the face of, of Soul there, she doesn't mind being chained to the dragon, you know? She doesn't mind that energy of the dragon. The feminine impulse doesn't mind being really close to nature and part of it. Um, and the feminine impulse is happy in the moment and just being there and just experiencing and really not giving too much a damn about change and not, not really wanting to be perfect, perfected and not really realizing that there's any perfection to be done. The Soul is is that type of presence and very and has a very close relationship with the dragon until spirit comes along and tries to conquer the dragon or kill the dragon or slay the dragon free the maiden 
and free the soul and bring the soul up towards the light and, and work with soul. And yet there's a, there's a clue here in this drawing, in other alchemical drawings, of the attitude that the alchemist has in working with the dragons. It's not one, it's not Martian, it's not iron, it's one of meditation. You can see it by the expression on his face, it's one of calm, one of recognition. Even the dragon itself is bowing its head to this type of approach. It's a meditative approach. It's knowing the reality of the dragon, the reality of the situation, and being connected to the moment. Again, another dragon, as we go into fermentation, it's often shown in red and blue colors, and, and I, I was struck by this one. It's about this, the, the fermentation phase kind of destroys all your ideas of what's safe and sound, and fermentation dragon uh, is, is associated with the moon and images. The mercurial dragon in alchemy uh, is this figure called the rebus, this contradictory figure coming, coming together. In other words, it's actually soul and spirit becoming one in one body, so it's becoming one together. You can see that any double-headed figure like this is the rebus, and it's referring to, the, to Mercury in the fermentation stage. This is the green dragon from the beginning of the work, that dragon that carried all the life energies from which uh, the mercurial dragon will emerge finally. So all kinds of images at this stage. The dragon's being subdued and, and controlled in distillation and after the fermentation stage. After the distillation stage is associated with stars and stellar presences and work on that level of reality uh, to purify the compounds and can purify the sun and moon and, and the spirit and bring it up towards an infinite process. And during coagulation, it's bringing it together in this ball or precipitate or some type of presence that one can work with or some type of physical presence. So if we, if we look at the dragons and how the dragons work in alchemy, there's a process in alchemy of taming them. And it's, it's reflected in the mythology. It's reflected in all the old legends. It was like common knowledge at that time, and we have lost that connection with what all these legends meant. But they're referring to these processes of taming the dragons and, and whether those dragons are expressed as metals or emotions and temperaments in, in human beings, or whether they're spiritual processes of soul and spirit coming together and how they relate. Uh, they're all archetypal forces that we can control, and that's the message of, of the dragons. As fearsome as they are, we can relate to them. And alchemy gives us a process uh, to do that, a, a clear process of steps and stages and how to handle each metal and how to work with each metal. And we'll be talking about more of that in the workshop and actual meditations the alchemists used to work with the metals. But I know when, when I worked with the metals in 92, it was like the nine months of hell. Because um, when you work with the metals, you alchemically, you have to get to know them. And the, the metals carry such strong archetypes that it really is easy to be overwhelmed by them. It involves such crazy things as carrying a lead bar, a lead bar out uh, when Saturn's in the sky, usually late at night, and it has to be in the winter, unfortunately. <laughs> and you go out and, and you're outside and hold the lead bar up to the Saturn, and you meditate with it as long as you can hold it in your arm. And as your arm becomes weaker, this metal starts vibrating, and it gives off this cold and really um, life-denying frequency between it and Saturn. It's called the call of lead, and that's how you work with these, these lead. I mean, I'm standing out in my backyard doing this in the middle of the night in the winter, and I must look crazy, but that's one of the things that alchemists do, and that's part of their formulations of getting to know the metals. 
and then you melt them down and, and you play with them in that way, just like I played with Mercury when I was a kid. You play with them to get to know them. And you do the rituals and you do the meditations that the alchemists used. And you do the lab work, too, of trying to combine uh, lead and putting it, powdering it and calcinating it and uh, dissolving it and going through all those processes. And you do the same with tin and iron to get to know these signatures of these metals, which are much more profound and uh, distributed throughout the world than, than uh, anyone realizes, except the alchemist, I think. I get confirmation time and time again of the connection between the metals and the planets, as odd as it is, as odd as that call of lead that it wants to return to its archetypal source. It's, it's true. I mean, uh, chemists have found, uh, for instance, the lead acetate uh, reacts in different ways depending on the position of Saturn. If Saturn is conjuncting with something or is out of the, out of the uh, alignment, the lead acetate behaves in totally different ways. For instance, even the way it goes up a filter, experiments of Lily Cosico and others have shown that the metallic salts rise up in filters in different patterns that relate to conjunctions all the way through gold. Each, each, each metal has a different pattern it shows in its reactions and also in, it, in the physical properties depending on, on if the planet is in the sky or not. There's other studies that have been done between the fluctuations in the price of gold, for instance, and silver on, on mercantile markets that uh, relate the price of gold to where to what's going on with the sun. If there's a solar eclipse, you know, don't buy gold. <laughs> price is, almost always goes down. And there's been actual studies of the, the relationship between metals and planetary events uh, in the stock market. And there's a lot of little things you don't discover until you delve into, like, geology and little known facts, for instance, with tin. Tin is distributed throughout the whole planet in a, in a strange ring that goes around through the planet, and that's where all the deposits of tin metal are found on the whole planet. That 23.5 degree tilt in the planet is exactly where Jupiter lies on the elliptic in relationship to our planet. It's the exact correspondence between where, le where tin is found in a planet and the the inclination of Jupiter in the solar system. And all, all, the, uh, all the metals except gold and silver and the noble metals show that tendency to accumulate on the planetary sphere at the same angle that the planet is with the Earth. But the, the metals, for instance, silver being a lunar metal, most of silver on the planets dissolved in the oceans, whereas gold being a solid metal is distributed evenly throughout the planet uh, in the soil. I think gold is probably the best, although I didn't like the signatures of the other metals. The signature of gold is, is amazing, and it's something that everyone should take a piece of gold and go out to the sun in the morning uh, at sunrise and, and feel that resonance between that metal and the archetype of perfection that, that is there. I had an opportunity to work in a gold mine after I was working in New York and, and wanted to get away from that. I moved in the middle of the Nevada desert, got a little trailer and filled it up with my books, and that's all I had was the books and my trailer in the desert, and it was wonderful for a long time. In fact, my little trailer was on end from all the books on <laughs> being in it, but it was great. I mean, I really loved it being out there, and I stayed out there for over a year until I ran out of money. So I got the paper, and there were like two jobs in there. One was a gas station attendant, and one was uh, working in a gold mine as an engineer. So I fluffed up my resume a little bit. And <laughs> and wrote a couple of books on engineering and mining and, 
and went in there, and they were desperate enough that they hired me. It was Gooseberry Mine just outside of Reno, and it's an 1,800-foot vertical shaft, uh, a deep, deep mine that was, is following this vein of gold up. Uh, whenever I had the chance, I'd go down, and I remember the first time I, I saw the face where the, where the miners were working, and it was on a Sunday where I was working on a, a conveyor project or something, and I went down to the depth of the mine where you could feel, I mean, it got cold for a while as you are going down, and all of a sudden it started getting warm. You were feeling the warmth of the earth itself from the core at that depth. And then at the face, it was dark there, and yet when I turned the corner to the face, it was amazing. There was this white wall of quartz, pure quartz. Gold very much likes white quartz, very much likes pure quartz, and it's always, always found in a vein of white quartz. There was this white quartz going up in a direction like that. It must have been like 10 or 11 feet wide. Right in the center was this 18-inch vein of gold that was about that deep, 18 inches. They took a million dollars a week of gold out of that mine. And that vein of gold was heading up towards the sun and was growing up in the earth, just like the alchemist said it did. And it looked just as beautiful and as pure and as amazing at underground, revealed freshly from the earth as it does in that gold ring on your finger. It's absolutely indestructible. The feeling there, when you walk into the, the face, as opposed to the rest of the mine, which is all this gray, dead matter, and these iron railings from, from uh, taking the ore away. And you go in that room, and it's like you're in the presence of a life force or something. I mean, today, I, I really regret that I didn't perform rituals <laughs> down there, or meditations more, with that vein of gold, because that was living gold, right? And you realize what that means when it's, they say it's living. Uh, any questions or anything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the Orphic egg, or the, or the, uh, like the first projection into matter that organizes it. It's like the the germ of the universe, uh, from which the whole universe grows. Yeah, and the pimander. Yeah, and, and that's incidentally a book I recommend to everyone. It's about this vertical axis of reality, and how you how Hermes travels on it, and he describes what he sees. And many people in different visions on the vertical axis reality, including myself, see those same things. And the Ouroboros, is that the completion of the process? The is actually an indication of the process itself. The Ouroboros is snake eating its own tail, sometimes shown with wings above and then feet below. It's, it's, the, it's the idea that there's a living force going through the universe, going down into matter and up into light, and up into the volatile area of the wings, and that it's a continuous process. It's very much like the the Tai Chi symbol, that it's going on and on again. Again, this is the, the, the golden serpent or the golden dragon. Uh, these dragons at this level often show clasping something precious, like a pearl or a stone. And uh, this is a symbolization of the white force or the, or the gold archetype uh, in that drawing. Any other? Back there in the back. Of uh, lead and what? I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Okay, um, lead and the radioactive metals. Um, Saturn uh, has this this uh, signature of time, as we were talking about. Again, another. How did the ancients know this? How did the ancients know that that uh, lead would be connected with time somehow? Father Time and 
carrying the hourglass. The thing is that all metals beyond lead, lead is the heaviest metal, any metal that tries to get heavier than lead turns back into lead. No metal can get beyond lead. Lead's like a boundary of heaviness in the, in, probably in the universe. Any metal that goes beyond lead is radioactive and eventually decays back into lead. That process is so stubborn, so saturnic, and so regular that that process is used for us to measure time. The only precise way to measure time, atomic clocks, that process is so regular and saturnic that, that it, it, there's no way to change it. And the radioactive decay of elements is how we measure time now in the world uh, with atomic clocks. So it's very much related to that. Lead, well, the specific weight, the specific gram weight is the highest, so that's the weight per gram, which is 21. And the, and the number, I think, is 77. I'm not sure. 80 is mercury, and I think lead's quite, quite close to that. Any other? What's your opinion of the uh, Bardon system in relation to the alchemical spectrum? Franz Bardon, Bardon is a, really a magician, no more is a magician, who has uh, some books out on alchemical processes in magical terms. And they're very good rituals, I think, as far as uh, connecting with the energies and the archetypes. Uh, magicians and, and alchemy and that whole hermetic tradition is actually closer than most people think. In other words, for instance, the beginning tarot card is the fool, the zero card. The end of the process, the, the final card, is the magician card. That's the alchemist. Like last month, I was at a magician's conference in Vegas talking about alchemy. And I, I showed old alchemical prints, and the magicians were just plotting and going crazy. Uh, about the, the meaning of these prints, which they, which they instantly knew and, and understood as hermetic people. So great magicians like David Copperfield and uh, Jeff McBride and uh, Lance and all the others down in Vegas, they were there. Jeff McBride in particular is very much into like the seven steps of, uh, of alchemy. In fact, he bought like 400 copies of my Emerald Tablet book and gave it out to his friends. So they're fascinated by that. And Franz Barden is a, a 19th century ma a magician who, through very elaborate and distinct rituals, explained how to get in touch with these archetypes, I think. So I, I, I credit his work. Uh, some of the others, I don't, I don't see much use for. Uh, even Crawley had a lot to say about alchemy, and he has his own translation of the Emerald Tablet. So all that alchemical and hermetic knowledge is very important in, uh, among magicians and, and true magicians. Thank you very much.